Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Sure. My name is Tim Carpenter. So pretty straightforward. Yeah. I live in Prague and mm -hmm. I started this podcast in Europe. And so like a, a lot of people had very European names. And so I, I started it that way for, so like the first 50 were all European people. So I was sort of like, could you help me with your name, please? Sure. Yeah. So, but now of course I've got a bunch of Americans with like John Smith. Right. Like, okay, fine. I don't think I've ever had a mispronunciation I, that I, I have <laughs> ever come across. It's, it's a pretty straightforward name. <laughs> I know, but it's just the way I started. more interesting, you know? <laughs> Jean, Jean, Jean. Well, yeah. that's like, like here in the Czech Republic, you're like J's are pronounced like a Y. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, so sometimes it is just like character. Like my name is Matthew, but of course they call me Machu. Oh, yeah. Don't know why. But anyways. Yeah. Yes. So first thing I generally talk about is um, sort of how, how did you – so you are a publisher and a photographer yourself. That's right. Great. Just want to set that up. Mm -hmm. How did you even become creative? So were your parents creative, some childhood experiences? Like what brought you down the path to being uh, in the creative industries? Yeah, that's a really, it's a good question because it kind of convoluted for me. Uh, the one thing I would say is my dad, he, all, in many ways, he keeps saying I'm not creative and I'm he's building a, a model train in his basement that is one of the most creative endeavors that I've ever seen in my entire life. But he's an engineer and, you know, he would, but he was lifelong into cameras and because of his, his hobby and passion of chasing trains and being interested in trains. And part of that was, well, he bought cameras as a kid to start to document that. So throughout my entire childhood and my, my sisters, we were, you know, we were given point and shoots and you know, probably not unlimited film, but, uh, you know, as much film as we were probably going to reasonably use. So, so I was, you know, we were just always encouraged to do that. We're also, I would have to say, you know, I think what fuels creativity is my dad is a big reader and he would read to us a lot. And I was encouraged to be a, a reader from the get go. And I think, I think my access to reading and my, you know, the, my desire to read continuously is, is a big part of what fuels everything I'm interested in. So, so without them, you know, like buying me paint sets or like a piano, I think my mom and dad laid the structure rather, you know, you know, without lessons and things like that, but they, but they, in, in a different way, there's a structure for creativity, you know, and for thinking, thinking through things that I, you know, and they probably weren't even planning it that way, but like, it's just really, it's panned out for kind of how my personality is. And it, you know, it's been fruitful for me. I love it how you think parents plan their children's lives. <laughs> right, yeah. It shows that I don't have kids, right? <laughs> yes, very much so. Because like I've been recently thinking about that. I'm like, how can I like construct my child's life so that they will end up doing XYZ because either they love me and they want to approval for this thing or they want to be a rebel and do the opposite of whatever I do. Yeah. So like, you know, trying to figure that out. <laughs> It's not going to work, right? But I'm fascinated. Okay, you're my first guest publisher, mm -hmm. so I'd like to sort of focus a little bit more on the publishing aspect than necessarily the photography aspect yeah, yeah. because I've had a lot of photographers on. Mm -hmm. So, book publishing. A. What started you down the path? Like, did you start with maybe doing your own book and then sort of it steamrolled into creating an actual publishing empire, or was it? Well, I'd love to call it an empire. So, 
it really had entire everything to do with my graduate program. So it was uh, the MFA was at the University of Hartford, the Hartford Art School in Connecticut, and it was a limited residency program, but it was really a book program. And we, our final thesis project was we were judged on a book and we did have a wall show just because it's fun, you know, we did that, but we started, you know, like I, so I started in 2010 and graduated in 2012. And so, you know, at least in America, we were all under the thrall of like Sleeping by the Mississippi and All the Days and Nights, the Doug Dubois book, Alex Soth, but books were just, you know, they were huge, they were getting huger, you know, like, so, it was just a big deal. And so we were in, and you know, everybody was in my class, we were all interested in that narrative possibility. That's why we, you know, decided to do that MFA. So throughout the course of that, like I said, it was a limited residency. And so we were, most of us were flung over, you know, North America, some Europeans. Luckily for me, there were three other students in New York city. So we got to meet in person all the time. And we were, you know, could we look through contact sheets? We could really hang out. We, so it was great that not everything was online outside of the in-person in, in sessions. So the, the the four of us became good friends and we just all talked about, hey, when this is over, we want to start a publishing company. You know, we're interested in books. Now we're, we're boot camping it. We're going through this all, you know, it seems like we could probably figure this out. So once we, so we graduated in 2012, we didn't actually launch the thing until 2015. Uh, so there was, there's so much more to that story than just like, hey, let's just make a publishing. Right. Like, I mean, just all the stuff, the legality, the mm -hmm. the, the tax stuff. Like, yep. oh my God, there's so much in all of that that people don't talk about very much. There is, yeah. And I mean, I can tell you as much or as little as you want to know about that. But, you know, I think the first part was getting the vision thing together because, you know, with four different people, I mean, we obviously had a lot of overlapping vision and but and thinking. So, you know, it was a lot of talking through. And then I think, you know, so through two years, two and a half years of school, three years of just even talking about it, we kind of knew where it wanted to be. So once we actually got down to actually doing things, you know, it then it happened rapidly. I think, you know, really the, the one of the most, the impetus, there was twofold impetus. One was that we knew of some artists uh, had, who had become friends who we thought, either had some, they were underpublished in general, or they might have a project that we thought that really needed to be seen. So there was that part of it. And we thought we can, we can do those. And there were some names already. So that we thought, you know, that we can launch with not just, you know, unknowns. Now the unknown part was that the, the four of us decided we would make these little sets of four books that kind of, they were all designed and, and printed the same size and everything. We sold them as a group. So there was a DIY aspect to it too, right? So we, so because nobody's just kind of knocking on your door and saying, hey, let me publish a book. We thought, let's let's make our own, but let's offer a catalog that's going to include. So we launched with a guy named Steve Smith. Stephen B. Smith is how he goes buying his books. But And he was part of the faculty at Hartford, great, great photographer. My One of my business partners is Nelson Chan, and Nelson had been a longtime student of Steve's, and he knew of some work that was unpublished and Steve very graciously trusted us and allowed us to uh, to, do, to start with that. We followed it up with a book like Justine Curland. We did a book by John Gossage. So so quickly we had some names that people knew and you know that that caused that generated some immediate interest that we didn't have to do entirely on our own, you know. And then so they could see it as a book fair, they could, you know, see us online and and kind of say, "Oh yeah, these guys are working with some serious people." And oh, I'll take a look at you know, the books that they're putting out of themselves. So that was, it was, you know, kind of just to get those, those two things going. 
but then you're right. I mean, you know, the part of it is like, well, you got to form an LLC, you know, you, uh, you got to fund this thing from the get go, you know, and yeah. And just figuring out your sales taxes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there, that, you know, that there's a ton of stuff to be done there. And I think that's what kills a lot of people's interest. And, you know, it like certainly mitigates everyone's interest in doing this, but, you know, you, you know, usually hopefully you get in, you get enough into it and excited enough and you go to book fairs and, and you know, you start to get hooked and, you know, you put up with the shipping and, you know, and uh, whatever problems with the postal service problems with shipping to Europe because it's so expensive, you know, all this kind of stuff. So, you don't have to tell me about it. I, right. mean, I, try, I tried to order something from Amazon recently, and I, it was literally like an office supply, and they ended up stopping it in customs right. for like two weeks. I'm like, it's an office supply. Yeah. Like, this is nothing horrible. Like, why are you stopping it in customs? It was ridiculous. Yeah. But that's maybe that's just the Czech Republic. It may not be all of Europe. Oh, uh, yeah. It's pretty general. Well, yeah, we never know. That? Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, okay. So when it comes to book, I mean, I have so many questions about it and I'm not sure how pedantic to get with my <laughs> questions, like, or whether to stay sort of general and broad, I would rather be a bit more precise. Okay. Like, really interesting. Okay. Let's go through like the step-by-step of like, how did you do your publishing? So from, from start to, to, completion being so like do you all sit down and choose the artists because i know on your website right now you have a submissions button so people can submit things so like so so is is it that people submit ideas and then you sort of choose them or do you choose the artists and hope they have some good project that's been unpublished yeah i mean and i think you know the thing is we're there, well, okay, let's, there's a longish answer. There's, the short answer is that up to now, it's been people and things that we already knew of. You know, uh, just because we're friends with these people, we knew, you know, knew what they were doing, got connected. There is a submissions policy. You know, we, all, we say we will certainly look at everything, but it just takes a long time. Unsolicited stuff, uh, rarely, I mean, and I, I would say this for any publisher, it's, it's rarely going to make it through, but, you know, it's always, it's always worth a shot. And, you know, it's interesting to look at some things. But so what I would say, you know, up to now, I think as, and what I was saying up to now is like, uh, as publishers get larger and as they want to have more titles, obviously they're, they're just the single, con- the personal connections, is you're going to exhaust those. And so then, then, then that's when you need to just kind of be feeding the, the pipeline a little bit more and whether that's unsolicited stuff or, or contests or, sub- you know, bigger submissions or those kind of things. That's yeah, that's when that needs to happen. But, but right now, you know, TIS is, couple, three books a year for, you know, so, so we, we kind of know, we know people, we, we see things that are going on, you know, and, and I will, we'll talk still mostly about publishing, but so my, the public, the, the publishing company that does my books is called the ice plant and they're in Los Angeles. And because they know I'm a publisher too, they're really open with all this stuff. So I, you know, I've learned a lot from being published by someone else too, who's been in it longer. And, you know, they only do a couple, three books a year, too. So I, I know that most of theirs are, you know, they have a submission policy, too, but it's through connections. Because it was actually Ron Jude sent them the maquette for my first book. He had been published by them, by the Ice Plant previously, and they're good friends. And so that's what they listen to or that's what they look at more than they would just something, you know, uh, submitted by email or something like that. Well, that's one of the big sort of unspoken about you know, sort of known, known, but yet untalked about secrets of the arts world, which is, you know, everybody says, 
oh, you can be an artist and just sort of sit in your studio and produce your thing and be magnificent and be discovered, which is a bunch of bullshit. Right. It's not going to happen. Like, it's all about the people. It's all about the connections. It's all about the network, whatever you want to call it, whatever word you want to use that makes you feel like you can do it. Mm Because a lot of people say like, oh, I'm not very social or I'm not good at networking whatever word you use for mm-hmm. it, but it, it's really how it all runs. Like, so like you have to get out and, and meet these people and make friends and be a good person and be kind and all this kind of stuff. Cause of course nobody wants to work with an asshole either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I talk to now, I have the opportunity to talk to more students and younger people. And I say, you know, I know the word networking has a negative aspect to it, but whatever you want to call it, you're going to have to start to build this, this network, you know, and cause that's, that's the way most everything happens. And yeah, it, it's, you know, you, you can submit to contests and still, but winning one of those is, you know, winning the Mac first book award is a bit, you know, it's fantastic, but it's a lightning strike, you know, and there's a lot of amazing books that, you know, that can't, that they can't, they can't do everything great, you know? So, so it is finding, you know, finding the kind of people who are inclined, you know, we all, like, as you've already spoken about, we, there's different, you know, there's, there's German photography, there's American photography, there's West Coast, there's all, it's also kind of finding what your niche is and where, you know, where you might be able to play and, and what kind of people are in your ballpark and, and, you know, and figuring out what publishers might be right for you and what kind of people can get you to the right places. The other thing I tell students though is also, as you do this, you have to be really smart. You know, you want to, you got to wait until you got something that's really good and it's worth taking people's time to, to try to, to ask them to help you. You know, you uh, you have to be real, real damn sure because you're not going to have a, a million chances to just keep asking people for help. You know, you you have to manage that and and know that you know, build it up and have something you know that's good that's worth worth going ahead. So you know, it's. But I think most people who are kind of, as you mentioned, just kind of decent, workable people. You know, we we figure our ways through these through these things. Oh yeah, I mean, in my career, I was at a certain point. I was a complete narcissistic asshole <laughs> and 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 egotistical and arrogant and all this kind of shit. And I made many many mistakes uh, in yeah, my yeah. career, and I have burned far too many bridges through actions or inactions. And only through this podcast have I really learned just how much I missed out on in my career because every single person that comes on as a guest tells me it's all about connections. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, great. Okay. The one thing that I did wrong, like, like, you know, like everybody sits around and thinks like, I make good work. I write good artist statements. I enter the right competitions. I do all this kind of stuff, but all of that stuff is just one small aspect of being in this industry like Mm -hmm. and you still have to be part of that network you have to be part of a of a tribe a community or whatever you what word you want to put to it that that really supports you and you support in return i absolutely and i you know i i really kind of identified there's two levels of it too which maybe i was getting a little bit is that like so you've got your friends and you, you know maybe there's people who are your heroes and are becoming your friends and and you know, you, you, as much as you can, you use them to kind of like soundboard, you know, like, here's what I'm working on, you know, especially with, so we're talking, if we're talking photo books, you know, like it's one thing to make great pictures, but then there's this whole other aspect of editing and sequencing and figure, you know, like there's so many, there's a million book decisions to be made. 
and to kind of like, you know, as you start to even have a PDF or as you start to make a maquette, you know, having people kind of work through that. Then as you get to something that's at a level that's solid enough, you know, maybe maybe it's some of those same people who maybe they're either publishers already or they're well, they have a publisher, they're well connected and they're like, hey, man, yeah, I'll pass your PDF on or I'll, yeah, give me your maquette. I'll get it to somebody, you know, so it's, it's, it's the two levels for me. It's like, you know, using a group to, to hone and then, and then, you know, using aspects of that group to, to potentially get it to somewhere. And then, you know, the final thing is like, what we're going back to is that me and my friends finally decided, you know, also let's just short circuit that and let's make our own. Cause you can, you know, like, it's not impossible. You know, we were four smart people, but like, there's tons of smart people, (laughs) you know, like, uh, I, you know, I'm all surprised when people think we're like gatekeepers or something. And I'm like, you know, two years, you can be in the New York Art Book Fair. You can, you know, I mean, let's hope that it comes back. The LA Art Book Fair, you can be in Paris, you can be in Berlin. You can do this on your own, you know, like. But it's not cheap. No, it's not cheap. It's not as expensive as people think either. You know, yeah, yeah, you're going to have to, you know, you, whether you kickstart it, whether you, you know, ask, you know, find somebody who can give you a loan, uh, you know, whatever, max out some credit cards. So, so how did you all do it? Yeah. So that was the other benefit of having a few of us, you know, like was that we, uh, so we made a decision that we did not want artists putting in any money, which is great, you know, and uh, not to disparage, there are plenty of great publishers who do have people put in some money. And I, I, I don't mean to oppose that. It's just a choice we made. The other thing is that we didn't want to do any crowdfunding. Also, I'm not opposed to that. It's just, those were the two decisions that we made. So, but with, with a few of us to put in money, that helped, you know, we were able to get, get the nut in there to get going. And, you know, the thing is, you're going to have to, you know, you have to figure out, can you, can you, you know, run some credit cards for a couple of years or, you know, whatever it is, or however you're going to do this, get a loan, you know, do it, whatever. But, and, you know, to get enough, cause it's a trick. That's the tricky part, I guess, at the beginning is to go to a book fair or even have something online, you know, you don't want to just have one book. You know, you probably gotta have two, three, it'd be awesome. Make some posters. I don't know, make a tote bag, you know, like, I mean, but literally, I mean, it sounds a little goofy, but you, you kind of love wanna, a tote bag. Yeah. Well, it turns out everybody loves a tote bag. Even me and my partners joke about it, but you know, to have an offering to, for people to see that you, you know, that you've got things going on is, is important to kind of start with that. So there's a, you know, there's a cash outlay to kind of get your, get that nut going. But then, I mean, the objective is that, even if you don't make a ton of money, you're making, you start to make back enough money that you're going to seed the funding for the next book. Right. And then, you know, that's ultimately the goal. And then, you know, the bigger goal being that you, you could actually pay people and hire people and all that kind of stuff. Most of the publishers I know are just really trying to have it turn around so that they can stay alive and fund the next book and, and keep going and, and, you know, have fun and do what they like. So speaking of that like you would mentioned earlier about your like style different styles of different publishers like when you approach them and stuff yours I, I, it seems to me now i might you know correct me if i'm wrong you do remember the the podcast is called the wise fools so yes like, I, mean, I say lots of stupid shit so <laughs> that your style seems to be sort of documentary or jur- sort of like you have a distinct publishing style so like in other words if somebody's a you know, a photojournalist that, or a documentarian, then your your TIS might be the right place to submit to. Whereas if you do something, some other kinds of photographic stuff, like travel photography or something like this, maybe it's not the right place. And so like when somebody, well, on two sides, 
on one side, you all as a publisher, how important is it to have a consistent sort of style or voice as a publisher? And of course, when people make sure that when people think to propose a book to you that they should do a lot of research like yeah. the, the, there's nothing worse than tr just doing the scatter shot to everybody that they should actually be sure that their style is similar to the style of the publisher sure i mean there, there's a lot to say there and you know like i think one can say that the style of the imprint definitely came out of you know us having gone to school together and having uh, common sources and you know yeah i think you know and everybody always asks they ask you as an individual photographer, they ask you as a publisher, you know, like, what's the style? And you say, you know, I think you're right. It's that it's called, you know, people call it documentary style. I think that was Walker Evans's term or, you know, real world photography. The thing. So, you know, yes, it vernacular. is vernacular. Yes. You know, I mean, we tend to say vernacular, meaning like you found photographs, but, you know, like, yes, but, but it is those, it is those kind of things. You know, there's not much studio photography really yet in our catalog or, you know, in Ice Plant or, or my friends, but that doesn't mean it couldn't possibly grow there. The, the thing is, like, you know, I, as, as I was talking about, you know, like getting that growth is it, I think for us, it was even more important that there was a, a stylistic consistency to the to the, the books themselves as well so that the table looked good. And then, you know, then whatever you got inside of them you know, could, could be more, more broad. And I think, you know, it's just this thing, you all, as you get more and more books, then, then your catalog looks different. Right. And, and you can expand it and you can go, then you can go to margins. You can go further out. You can, you know, grab something that's, that's different, but maybe the design brings it all back in, you know, like, so I think that it's a thing as you grow, you know, like, I mean, you, you, everybody uses Mac as the standard because, you know, like Mac grew out of Stidal and they, you know, now there's a Mac look to things. MacBooks look to things, but in, that allows them to go quite broad as far as like the kind of photography, but kind of keep it all reined in. And, and as your catalog gets better, bigger, you're you just have more flexibility to do that, you know. And it's just harder if you've got five or six books and they're all over the place. That confuses people. If you've got twenty-five books and they they still have that breadth in them, then it's not as confusing, right? Because you 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 create you, the more chances you have to create an identity the better that identity, the more that identity is going to kind of sing through, through all the pieces. But yes. So when I, you know, I think if you're really thinking about publishers, go to a book fair. I always tell people there's also, there's a, a, a website in the United States called photo. Eye. it has almost everything that's in, you know, in print, they have a thing called publisher showcase. And it's just literally, a, a, it's a one page on their website where they have every publisher that they handle. And I think, you know, you can flip through those and you just need to kind of look through and say, well, you know, where am I in the ballpark of this publisher, this publisher, where might be, where might I be a good stretch for them? And, and or where, yeah, am I just really not, you know, not probably appropriate for them? And, and you know, you need to think about like how, how design heavy do I like books to be? Do I like it to be Dutch, you know, like, which is, you know, our shorthand for heavy, <laughs> great awesome or you know is it is it more spare you know and do you, you just want your thing to be really about the pictures and and not so much about design and so you know then you can also get that vibe from how the publishers treat those books yeah there's a lot to think about you know and i, I think it's the best thing you know the other thing i would tell uh, just as advice to people if you go up just to, to a publisher at a book fair and you kind of pull out your maquette or something like that and be like hey 
you know, my business partner, he's better at it than I am. He'll stop and he goes, well, why don't, why don't you look at our table and see if you might fit, you know, like, you know, you should at least do us the, the courtesy of just checking out our books first, you know, to see if, if it might, might work. So I think you, you got to do your homework. Yeah. Well, from my cunning plan as an artist, what I, if, if I'm going to approach a book publisher at a book fair, I better buy a book from them before <laughs> I even bring up the topic of the fact that I have a book. Because right. like, if I'm not going to throw some money down for them, then they shouldn't even be right. looking at me. Right. It's just, it's just polite. No, I know. And people, you know, I think people, they, they don't, it's, it's a, it's a well-intentioned enough, but they don't realize that we're at the book fair to make money, to do things. And it's not really our time for like looking at new things generally. Now, if it's really slow, you know, on a day, you know, you can make an exception for sure, but it's just, you're not really in the mindset of trying to feed the pipeline right then. You, you even if it doesn't look like you're busy, you got a million things going on at a book fair or something like that. So, but yeah, it's just doing your homework and figuring out where you, you know, you might be, might be a good fit and kind of establishing that relationship. Sure. Let's, let's go into a, like a little bit more specific mm -hmm. stuff. Now, keep in mind, I also, my master's thesis was a handmade book mm -hmm. and I actually studied with Georgia Deal at the Corcoran. And so like, I actually have a little bit of handmade book yeah, background. Yeah. Um, so do you do, and, and I even worked for a gallery one time and we were thinking about, well, no, we would, we didn't, we did produce catalogs mm -hmm. and, you know, we thought about things like, we came up with a consistent size and then a consistent material that was used on the outside and then even consistent fonts so that when they were on the bookshelf all lined together that they had a consistency so they could say oh those are the catalogs from that gallery like because they had a distinct unique look and they fit together beautifully like so do you still do that kind of thought on on your books and your in your roster yeah we do and i see it in other in other places and i'll t i'll tell you so that brought a few different things to mind so when i mentioned that mfa program me and my fellow students we were the very first class in that it was brand new and so we were the first ones you know graduating and we almost all handmade our books and the classes after us very quickly wised up and still they were still handmade aspects of them but some of them just went to small digital pr presses or went you know even got it on offset and made 50 of them or whatever because hand making i mean it's gorgeous you know the objects can be truly wonderful but well you don't know what you're getting yourself into when you decide to hand make a book you know like and and try to do it really really well so what I want to segue, you know, when you talk about consistency or, or choosing material, you know, like it's, it's really important because what you learn is that, you know, you say, well, I want the book to be this size and I want this paper and I want this and this and this. You can do it that way. You, you can lead with those decisions or you can go to a good store and find, hey, where's the paper that's already cut? Where are these materials? Where's the, you know, like, and you can say, okay, well, guess what? I can lose a half an inch on my ideal book size because there's paper with the right grain and everything, you know, and you can start to look at material and let that influence how the book comes out. And you're going to make your life like a million times easier because now you're not cutting paper. You know, now you're not doing all these little things that you have to do, you know, like you can maybe at a hardware store, you can find like a, you know, a metal something or that you can use in your binding that you didn't have to make yourself. You know, all this, I mean, I see people do this all the time. 
I used to trim my books at Kinko's. Yeah, right, right. With with their guillotine yeah, cutters yes. that they have there. Yeah. I love that thing. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. No, you learn you learn to have friends who have guillotine. You know, like or especially the really big one that can cut through. You know, like heavy heavy duty books. Oh yeah, these were yeah. this was the hydraulic yeah, one. Yeah. That could, like, <laughs> right. Cut through like five hundred sheets exactly. in one cut. It was yeah, magnificent. Yeah, but I mean, you just picked a detail that like, where am I going to source a guillotine? You know, like you know. There are, you just, you can create a whole bunch of problems for yourself. And if you kind of like, once you get into the groove, you realize you you don't have to create all the problems for yourself. You can, as much as you can use existing materials and stuff like that, you do better. And also, so getting to your point of like standardizing things, you know, there's some great publishers, Nazraeli, some other ones that, you know, now have a, uh, almost all the books are the same size. You know, they use the same paper stock. They, They can print in China. They can do some other things that are very cost effective once because now you you buy in larger quantities you know you have your process down this just makes every again it's just now we're talking at a different level of making everything easier but you once you can kind of simplify those things you can definitely and if you can even if you have four books that are four or five books that are slight you know somewhat different different trim sizes all that kind of stuff if you can gang them up on the press you're going to get better numbers from your press so you're going to learn all these things and it's going to take a while but but ultimately you know the objective is you got to to survive in this you got to get your books down you got to be making them as cheap per unit as possible so that you can sell them at a reasonable price and so you can use retailers because you're going to lose money there you know you want to just be able to to get the books down to to you know, the, the ideal is like to have it about a fifth or a sixth of the retail price. And if you're really getting good, you have it a seventh or eighth or ninth, you know, whereas like if a fiction book, you know, that's sold at Barnes and Noble, that's like a hundredth of its price or, whatever. you know, I, I, that neighbor, that number may not be quite right, but you know, our numbers, if we can get it well, down. But they're, they're often not actually using pictures. <laughs> no, no. Like, right. Right. Yeah, and you so, make 50,000 of them. So that's where you yeah. caught the unit. When we make 750 or something that, you know, that's getting us to a decent cost per unit, but still, you know, like, it's hard. So, well, and I remember a time back when I, last time I worked on on doing printing, like that the best, or I'm not going to even say like best, but like the right balance of quality versus price mm-hmm. moves. Like sometimes it's in China, sometimes it's in France, sometimes it's in you know, and, and it, it's interesting how it's not consistent. Like you would imagine that there's one place that is the place right. for everybody in the world to print at, but it, it keeps shifting around. I mean, is it still doing that? Cause keep in mind, this was like 15 years ago when I did it. Yeah, no, I think, you know, I'm always surprised. So like we have printed and many of our friends and other publishers have printed in China and in Istanbul. And I'll, I'll tell you like my, my image of cost of living and the printer, you know, that, that makes sense. I was like, those must be good places. But with the ice plant, we've printed the last few books in Germany. And I I'm, I still, I always ask the people there, I was like, listen, with the standard of living here and with what I know you pay people, I'm like, I'm just curious about how your numbers are better than the United States' numbers substantially. And even with the shipping and all that kind of stuff. And even with flying over here to do the press checks, it's like, how is Germany with their level or Italy with their level still coming in cheaper than the U.S.? You know, I, 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 I haven't gotten a really entirely good answer yet, but you know, that's fine. I, the, the one thing I found the most fascinating is always that the, the cheapest, best quality was never in the United States. Unfortunately, it's not, you know, we started out with the U S printer because we, we wanted it. They're outside of Philadelphia. So they were close enough to drive to, and they were excellent. And they treated us very well, even despite our low quantities. So we did three books with them 
great, great books. And they were books that we could show everyone else, like, here's how well we're going to treat you. But then we had to stop using them because we just, there's, you know, we just didn't even make any sense, you know? And so we had to, to find other places, but, but, you know, that was a good learning experience, but, you know, you talk, I think you mentioned earlier, I think the other thing people have to understand is like about trade-offs is like, so, you know, to get the book to a makeable price, sometimes you literally, because, you know, to get, a certain amount of sheets, a certain amount of pages out of a big sheet, a press sheet, maybe you need to cut a half an inch off the book or even just a quarter. And, you know, some people are like, no, no, no way. And other people are like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, you know, or, you know, you choose a different paper stock that uh, over the course of the book is going to, you know, paper is the driving price. Paper has become quite expensive over the last five, six, seven years. And so it's often the, the really the driving price. So making paper choices, making compromises on paper, and still getting what you want is important. You know, it's totally cool. You may be an art, one may be an artist who says, no, this is my vision and it has to be this way and um, that's fine. And the other person says, listen, I, just, I really just want to get the pictures out there. You know, let's let's work with this thing to make it as great as we can. And, you know, like, so both ways are, both ways are doable. You're probably just going to have more success if, if the more flexibility that you have. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm such a fetishist on beautiful <laughs> papers. Like, oh my god, right? I can I could sit in a paper store yeah. for hours just touching all the different papers. Sure. I love it so much. But I mean, it's expensive. I mean, but even beyond the expense of it, like a lot of people don't think about the fact that like the the nature of a book itself, the choice that whoever so whether it's the artist or you all or, or the budget mm -hmm. that's making the decision like the difference of a glossy versus an yeah. aquiel versus a matte mm -hmm. finish on the the images and the paper themselves make a huge right. impact on the on the uh, partly on like whether people think it's valuable mm -hmm. which i find really funny because people seem to think glossy means valuable right, right. or high quality in some way but they but sometimes some work is more appropriately expressed in a matte finish or an aquile finish or whatever so like just all of those those little nuanced choices partly make a big difference to the work but they also make a big difference to the experience for the buyer absolutely i mean you know the, my first book with the ice plant we used and some people kind of advised us against this we used a recycled paper and it has it'll have an occasional fleck in it you know but the but the way that the, this paper the tooth of it took the ink and we, we also used what's called ultraviolet printing, which is where after it, it goes through, it has a, a, an ultraviolet bath, essentially, which means that it dries instantly. So there's no dry down. You don't have to, in your mind, think about where this is going to end up. It gives a little bit of a sheen, though. And so those are qualities to it. You know, it was a bit of a risk. I mean, we did some print tests, so we knew kind of what, where it was going to turn out. But it turned, the, you know, the haptic quality of the book, like the way it feels and everything and the way the blacks are is is gorgeous and i love it i don't want to do it again either like i i think it was exactly right for what that was and i the the pictures that i've made subsequently you know we made another ice plant and i made another book together right away we were like we're not you know new, different paper you know and, and we want more of a clarity because this this next book is more about of, of a clarity and you know the thing is that what i want to tell you is like once you we've even the amount of experience we have but certainly people have way more experience you if you are thoughtful and you know the, the materials you don't have to have the most expensive paper 
it can be a combination of what kind of inks you use, what kind of paper you use, and you know what kind of yeah, a, a, a lovely hit with a light varnish can do maybe so, and that's cheap. That can do so much that your paper couldn't have done on its own, you know, and that can that hits your contrast. It makes your blacks really nice. You like, and I'm talking, I'm just talking in my base level of knowledge. My business partners are so much, so so much better at this, and there's many people who are at that level. They can find you reasonable ways to to get at your vision without necessarily thinking you have to have the most expensive paper every time. You know, there's. I love a spot varnish. You know, and you know the thing is, like, you, uh, most of, nobody really. You know, we didn't varnish my first book, uh, or maybe very lightly, but the second one, you know, like it, we got the the lightest hit, and it was just like so perfect. You know, so, but you know, these are things you just got to kind of experiment with and 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 figure out and have the press, you know, maybe run some some tests for you to see how how it goes. You mentioned earlier about book fairs. Now, I love a book fair, but of course I love books. So of course I'm going to love a book fair. But when you as a publisher are thinking about going to a book fair, what are some considerations that you put in saying like, should we go to X book fair? I mean, there are the obvious things like the cost of the admission or entrance fee, the cost of a booth, the cost of travel and all that. But like, what are some of the other things? Like, do you look at who else is participating, some of the history of it? Like, do you ask people, like people who have participated in the past? Like, how do you make your decisions? Because of course there are book fairs all over the world. So how do you choose which ones are the right ones for your publishing house? Yeah, no, it's a great question because you do, I mean, I think the, the thing is you do want to see you do want to look at at the list of you know who the, the publishers that are there because do you, yeah do you fit in with that or or does it make any sense whatsoever is it more of a general art fair you know sometimes you get in there and they're more it's more antiquarian books and people are you know they're not looking to buy you know brand new things you know like those are more of the smaller ones if it's a big one like New York or LA or the ones in Paris you know those those are pretty much you can't lose because that's you know they're going to have the general, the, the right kind of buyer, you know, the right kind of person there. I mean, you also want to know about, especially if it's a, a new fair, what are they doing to promote? Like how, you know, what's their PR strategy? You know, like what's their email list? You like, cause you want, you want folks in the door, you know, you, you got to have people coming through there, you know, to make it interesting. Now, the one thing I will tell you, like is a little bit unusual maybe for TIS is that again, you know, like, because there's a group of us, part of our interest is in just, Part of, and I think this is true for everyone though, is uh, part of the interest is in, in their making connections and having people see your books in that way and not thinking you necessarily have to get in the black for this fair. You would love to, I mean, you know, and, uh, of course that's always, the, but, but at first you're going to probably, you're probably going to be in the red for a couple fairs, you know, until you get established. Because the three of us, you know, we, we really like this. We are willing to pay our own, you know, airfare and our own Airbnb just to go to LA or to go to Paris and, and to have that, have the experience and kind of build this thing up. Some other publishers really, they may say, Hey, you know, all these expenses need to be part of what I make at the fair. And that puts more pressure on obviously to have sales and to think about that kind of thing. So it really just has to kind of do with the structure of, you know, of your business and what you're, you know, and obviously I see people do it alone. I, I have done book fairs alone. You can do them alone, but man, that's hard. So to, to have two people there, awesome. You know, like, and if you have a third, then then you're you're golden. But that's you know that's another that's another person to be feeding and to you know housing, you know, like all that kind of stuff. And so it's just you know there's all those different kind of layers of figuring out. Now you know being New Yorkers, we're lucky because uh, you have APAD, which is now called Perry Photo APAD, and you have the New York Art Book Fair at home. So you know you've got two huge ones. 
and we don't have to travel for them. And then, you know, LA is, is important. LA is still a pretty cheap trip and a cheap stay for like for an American, but Par- we go to Paris just because it's worth it. And because we want to see so many people there and because, you know, we, you know, making the connections at Perry photo and all that kind of stuff is important. The other thing is you, then you start to gang up stuff. So like last time when we went to Paris, I was with the ice plant. We did, we, then we went to Zurich to a bookstore there. We did an event. We went down to my favorite place in the whole world, which is Mi Camera in Milan. They have an incredible photo, photo community there. They've hosted us for the last two years. They do events, they do signings, we do critiques, we do talks. It's like, I just, I love the Italians and I, this, this bookstore is, is my favorite in the, in the whole world. Anyway, and then we went there and then we went to Bildbond in Berlin and did another, we did a talk and a signing. So you kind of, you start to learn to gang up all this stuff too, you know, and then, cause then it's just train trips from all those places. And, and um, you know, you just go to Europe once and, and spend the money once. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you start to figure everything out and yeah, you know, you get a vibe over, you know, this one's, this one did well for us. This one didn't, is it worth, is it worth just the exposure or do we really need to make the money? You know, so. Okay, you brought up a great topic, which is like a lot of artists, I, you know, keep in mind this podcast is about art in general, not just photography. So like a lot of artists are sitting around thinking a book is their life goal, like mm-hmm. they want a book. But what they don't, what a lot of us don't understand is, is that a book, producing a book, so having it physically printed is just the start. Yeah. Now, now you actually have to get it out to collectors, institutions, yeah. and and buyers, and art fairs, and all this kind of stuff. So, like, you mentioned book signings and this kind mm-hmm. of different events and things like that. So, like, basically, the question is: Okay, you can make a, you can find a great artist, you can produce a beautiful book, but ha- what are some of the tools and tricks that you use to actually get that product in front of the right people? Yeah. So I'll tell you, the, there's one fundamental difference, and then we can talk about other differences too, is that whether you use a distributor or not. So a distributor, like, so Ice Plant has a distributor called Distributed Art Publishers, DAP. And you can probably see, you can see DAP books around the world because that's how you're going to get into Barnes and Noble. It's how, you know, or, you know, wherever. But a distributor takes a, a pretty big chunk, right? But most of them, they actually, it's not even like a consignment. They actually, they buy, you know, they buy the books, right? And so that, that is a huge, that's a great financial thing. It's not as good as selling them direct because they're the, the, the chunk that they're taking. Like TIS and most of my friends, uh, our friends, you know, smaller publishers, we just can't possibly give up the percentage to, to a, dis- just a distributor. So that's kind of one, that's like one almost threshold difference based on your size and your relationships. Just to give a sense, you don't have to give me the exact numbers, but are we talking like 30, 40%? Yeah, 40, like, even to 50, depending. Yeah. So yeah. Okay, yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unless you're doing massive volumes right. kind of thing, that, that's undoable. If you can get your book down to a 10th or a 12th of its retail, then that it still hurts, but it's like, it, you know, you could do it. Right. And, you know, okay. Wait, so. within that retail, the price of, mm-hmm. of books, like how do you even figure yeah. out the price of a book? Like, because yeah. I mean, I've produced books in my life and, and don't get me wrong. I, I can't produce in volume high enough to bring the price down. So like, yeah. so they end up selling very little so the question is sort of how do you find that right balance of producing the right quantity in an edition and not bankrupting you yeah, all, yeah. but you know yeah. and and then setting the price point at the right place where people will actually purchase it 
Yeah. I wish I could tell you there's any one answer for that. It is just getting its feel, you know, like as you see how some books sell and what happens with them. And, you know, just, just some experience because you, you, you just don't know. The thing is like, you know, we generally see one of, okay. One of the, the main differences in printing is, is whether you go digital or whether you go offset. Right. So another great question. Yeah. So what, what, to talk about price a little bit, let, we should talk about that because digital, you know, per unit at low units is, is inexpensive vis-a-vis offset, right? Offset gets better and better the more you run it because once you the, the sunk costs into offset, they you know they then the, the, once the press gets going really fast, it's like you know you're, then you're making really cheap books and especially as they get higher and higher numbers, you, those books are getting cheaper. You know, there's no exact science, but it's somewhere around three hundred to four hundred that the price cur- like if you were to graph it out, the price curves would cross. You know, like and and digital then the price per unit becomes more expensive than what the offset would have been. So. So, you know, that's part of it is deciding, okay, well, where is this, you know, like, where are we even, how many books do we think we can sell by this artist, you know, and, and you know, so could you go digital or, you know, the other thing you can possibly say is even if it's a low number of books that maybe it just has to be offset, you know, maybe it's that kind of art that kind of, and it just has to be done that way. And you know, so, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously things that over override other, those, those decisions, but in general, one can say smaller quantities can be done digitally, larger quantities offset. So then, you know, you're really, like I said, you're just trying to get down, you're trying to figure what is the price per unit. And once you get to a price per unit, and the thing is also, you know, if you're good, you're not just saying, okay, what's my my printer bill and like dividing that by the number of books, but it's figuring out how much time you've spent, how much graphic design time spent, you know, like how much file prep time has been, you know, all those things and billing those at normal rates, you know, and figuring out all that and really figuring out what the, what, what a true price per unit would be, you know, and you fudge that or you don't or whatever, but you, you know, you, then you got to say, okay, well, this book, we can print this book for seven bucks and print this book for 10 bucks, 12 bucks. You know, you'd love to get it down to four or five. Then you can say, well, okay, I think, you know, we think the market will bear 45 for this. You know, is, is it a, is it, is a nice, is it a nice, like soft cover 40, 35, 40. Cool. Is it a hard cover? 50, 55, you know, and, but then, and then I'm, I think we've definitely seen a ceiling of 75 to 80. Now there, there can be exceptions to that, but you know, once people start to see 90, I think you, you really see a shutdown and that wasn't, you know, that may have been less true 10 years, you know, 10 years ago or, or so before, but you know, you see, you see that happen. So you're trying to get into a sweet spot where you think, you know, the audience for it, you know, if you have an established audience, for that artist and you know that they already sell out well, like we could price, you know, like a John Gossage book or something like that, uh, Andrea Modica, you know, like somebody who's famous and who sells prints really well, you know, like you've got built in collect people who are willing to spend that kind of money, you know, brand new artist, you know, 75 is, is going to sound really bad to break a brand new artist. You want to get them in like 45, 50. So you, you, it's just basically you got the two ends of the thing. You got the making at the price and the, and the, the selling it. And you, you kind of are jiggering the, the, the variables within there, you know, to try to, to get them to some sort of reasonable. Well, one of the other factors is also the addition size. Sure. You know, because like exclusivity and limitations make things more valuable, of course. So like, so what kind of choices do you make on at the edition sizes? Earlier on, we thought about like exclusivity and all that kind of stuff. And you, you, I think we think less about that. We think about what we realistically can sell, you know, and, and because you, like, if you can sell it at a year, that's awesome. Like, 
the thing is you also have to realize you're, you're inventorying something somewhere. You need space. And you start out, you do it, you say, oh, I can do this. And, you know, like we got a loft space or, you know, we got this other whatever. Then you, you learn you have to have a fulfillment house, you know, because you can't handle this all. And you, you, everything just goes to a fulfillment house. And so, you know, you can't just have too many books sitting around, you know, like, so again, this is part of that sweet spot. Well, what can we sell in a relatively quick amount of time, you know, and, and what's a good quantity for that? The, but the other thing that's tugging at that always is that, you know, the, the part that's tempting is that, moving from 500 to 600 books, that price per unit goes down, can go down quite substantially. And that's very attractive. He's like, oh man, I can get a hundred more books for like, you know, not much money. So, so, you know, you want to do that potentially. But you're going to have to store it at your rent prices. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, maybe if the book catches fire two years later or something, then you're going to feel good about it. But, you know, you could be stuck with some books, you know, and when you bring up edition size, like, you know, we don't always, and I mean, with, with my books with the Ice Planner TIS, you don't necessarily always print an edition size in the, on the colophon. You can make decisions that way too. You could say, this is, you know, this is 500, this is 600. Sometimes you don't. It'd be interesting to kind of run a case study to try to figure out how, if that's having much of an effect on the buyer. It might be. I just, I don't, I wouldn't have data one way or the other. You know. I'm such a snob. I love a book <laughs> with with a numbered, like a hand numbered yeah. quantity on it. Like I will suddenly pay probably twenty dollars more for something with a hand numbered uh, edition yeah. in it than I would if it didn't have that. Sure. Yeah. No. I mean, signature. You know, like whether you have things signed or, or whether there is a space uh, keeping a space for hand numbering. And then you know this other thing. The other way you can kind of like make it economically work as you're doing your special editions where you have a print and then you, you know, you, then that's the margins become much, much, much better, you know, and, and, and then it's not so hard for the artist like to, to make 25 or 30 prints of the same picture, you know, all at once. And, and, you know, then you can start to make back some of that money or, you know, or at least, you know, cushion the, uh, the margins on the, on the trade edition itself. Indeed. Okay. Now go back to how do you get the books to oh, yeah, the yeah. right publisher right. or to the right collectors, institutions, yeah. buyers, whatever. Like, so, you know, I mean, cause like in the old days, it's things like press releases mm-hmm. and things like this. But I mean, these days it's gotta be social media, YouTube, like there's gotta be other ways. For sure. Yeah. I'm trying to hit off on everything. So at TIS, before we'd even published a thing, we, we built, we built our website and I, started writing essays just because you know to have something for some people to go to and like let's you know on facebook and uh t- back then we used tumblr and i mean nobody uses it anymore but instagram like we were just trying you know like you'd say hey we got some content here you know come and sign up we'll have books and you know so email list is one of your most valuable assets i mean is it you, you try to you know you try to build that up as much as possible you know we really try when we make a sale to you know have people opt into the list when you're at book fairs you have people opt in right it's you just do it because that's that's the most important thing so you want you, you know you got to have your email list to announce things you know it's great to have a website at which there is there are other things to do you know to read some things or something like that that can help build some equity but then yeah, it's using the social media uh, as much as you can. You know, you want to have your own, obviously, your own social media channels and build up the audiences for those. Then, you know, going back to what we've talked to about before with uh, network is, you know, you 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 hope, you, you know, there's probably some friends you can ask nicely to to kind of pimp 
you know, the book, you know, just to kind of, you know, hey, there's uh, TIS, explain somebody's, you know, TBW, Debbie Club, they got this new book out, you know, like, and I do this for my friends all the time on my Instagram, you know, like books that I really love. I'm like, you know, I'm going to forward those, you know, and get in and show those on my feed and everything too. And we, I think we all help each other out a lot, a lot you know, that way. And that can kind of build your audience as well. So it's, it's getting those things out. It is, you know, like as much as you can using like, you know, if you have connections to podcasts, if you have connections to interviews, you know, people who are just willing, there's, there's some place, you know, kind of general photography, Instagram feeds and those kind of things. You need to make connections with those. And, you know, sometimes you just send them a PDF. Sometimes you, you know, sometimes they would request a book. There's a couple, there's in Italy, there's a place called Urban Autica and there's another one called Landscape Stories that have been so good to us and to my books. You know, we send them some information and they, they put it on, they have really good active feeds. They have newsletters They you know, like, so you just, you kind of learn all these things, you get a feel for them. And, you know, a lot of it has come from our feel for just being existing, watching photography, you know, and, and consuming it for a long time. And then you just got to think, well, where am I getting all my good information? And you got to go out to those people again. You know, but I think also we learned there's fewer of these, but like, as I mentioned, photo, I, there's photobookstore.co.uk, uh, Martin Amos, great guy in UK. There used to be more, there's a few more different places, but there, one aspect of retail is to, you want to have to sell at least a few books for them because they have email. They have really nice illustrated emails. My, I make my living entirely outside of photography in, in marketing. And there's this idea and it, it definitely works. It's it's definite idea of impressions, right? So any product and any politician, any, whatever you got, you know, you, people need to see them in different contexts and those are just different impressions. And sometimes for like products, it takes seven, eight, nine, ten 10 impressions. And I think that the same thing is absolutely true, especially for new publishers. It's like, Oh, I saw this on the photo. I email, I saw this at a book fair that starts to legitimize the whole thing, right? Because, or you, and you see, you know, you see Brad Foreyholm, you know, well-respected authority, like writes a piece about it. So now, oh my gosh, these pieces are coming together. Now as a, as a buyer, like I trust, you know, I, I think this might be interesting. So you're really trying to get, build those impressions. Do you remember that like in the, I think nineties, there was an advertisement for a, a roll on uh, headache medicine called head on. Yeah. And, and all they did with the entire advertisement was they repeated the word head on, huh? head on, yeah. head on seven times, because that was when that the, the scientific study came yep. out that said th that people don't remember a product until they've heard it seven times. It's sadly true, you know, <laughs> right. You're just trying to, you know, get, get those out and have to have those, you know, people see it. And I mean, it's also brand about your name, you know, as a publisher, because there's certainly important aspects to brand equity. I know that, you know, it's a term a little bit outside of our thing, but like, you know, everybody knows when you, when, when you see the newest MacBook email, Oh, even if I don't like everything in it, you know, like he's probably gonna have some interesting things or, you know, deadbeat club is going to have some really interesting things. TBW is going to have cool stuff. So part of it is your brand equity as, as a publisher. And part of it is just per book, you know, especially if you've got a brand new artist getting it out there so that, so that people understand that. And, you know, it's just, it, you, you have to be a little relentless, you know, like, and, and creative too, you know, like, well, okay. So we even plot out, okay, well, we want, we want 10 Instagram posts over the next two weeks, three weeks. So we'll have nice cover shots. Let's do an interior. Then let's do a quote from somebody else. You know, so you kind of, you kind of parse out these things, you know, you kind of try to make it so that you're not just constantly doing the same thing. You're kind of thinking about like a cadence for your, for how you're going to talk about the book. 
especially if you've got interviews, if you've got blurbs from somebody, you know, an enthusiast, you know, and if somebody famous happens to say, hey, I really like this book, you say, do you mind if we just hit you with that, that quote or whatever, repost you? And generally they always say, yeah, that's fine. And, you know, so it's just always being on top of, of doing those, those things, you know, and as I was advised and we always advise our artists, like when you're starting out, you just don't turn down any opportunity mostly because they're all fun. Uh, that's the main reason, but like, you know, is that it's, that's the way things go. And, you know, the thing you, you realize that there are snowballs, you know, once something gets picked up once or twice, then suddenly you get a call and they're, Oh, we saw this, we want to do this. And then suddenly like, and that, so you have, but you have to seed the snowball, you know, you have to, you have to do the work on your own to get it to go. But once, once people start to see things, they, they get interested. And, and then uh, that's also true. We certainly, I've learned with the ice plan is that, you know, putting out one book, when we, we put that out in 2017, we put the second one out in 2019, a lot of people were kind of ready for it, you know, like, and, and there was an stat, you know, my audience would be quite small compared, you know, I wouldn't even call it an audience necessarily, but, you know, we knew that people were there. We knew people who'd written before and were interested, you know, like right away they were interested again. So, so it's also, it's, it's not just per book, you know, you're building these things up over time and create, you know, creating those equities. Yeah, I mean, in this case, you're you're having to, you know, befriend slash sort of like make relationships with even like uh, the the people who write book reviews. Mm -hmm. yep. You know, even if they're not interested in photography, they might be interested in your book kind of thing. So, like, but that's and that's a whole nother world of of public relations, basically, and networking that you have that you have to do that me as a photographer sitting in my studio doesn't have to do. As a marketer, you you think, well, we're in the art photography world, you know, or we're, whatever world. But our first book that we put out, that's the Steve Smith, Smith book that I mentioned, the pictures were made in Salt, around Salt Lake City, and they have, it has a lot to do with his Mormon upbringing. And so we learned a few press releases or a few things to, so, this, so suddenly there was some, there's regional interest, right? You know, in the, just the subject matter, and they don't care that they're art photographs, right? And I was just advising a friend who she's self-publishing and it's about surfing or about surfboards and you know i was like listen we can go after the art photography market because these are beautiful serious art photographs but i was like you, i think you need a couple surf writers because i you know i think those are the people who are going to be like jones and for this like because of the subject matter so you you know you're always thinking about potentially are there ways are there other other audiences that might have an interest okay are press releases still a thing they yeah not i would say not a thing anymore but Okay. But I would still use them to get to, if I really wanted a, a newspaper in Salt Lake City, and I wanted to get to their arts entertainment editor, I, from my past, I, st I still know how to just structure one and write it and, you know, email it. They still kind of expect that thing. So I would say it's not so much used anymore, but, but you do, you know, like, it's not bad that we always design like a one pager. You know, the, the, other, the other thing is we learned is you, you do need some kind of, it, it's always painful, but like catalog copy, because you don't want to explain art, you know, but for some people you have to, you know, the book, well, it was made with a medium format camera, black and white, you know, it's, it's this many pictures. It's, you know, it's, it, this is where it was made. It explores these themes, you know, things I, I normally would never, ever want to say, but you got to, you know, for some people. Okay, hold on a second. That's an interesting topic in and of itself. So you're saying you're you're publishing photo books that that don't have any sort of essays in them or any sort of descriptions in them or anything like this? That is our general bent. It doesn't mean we would never do it. 
me and my business partners and uh, my publishers in the ice plant, I think are, are mostly of the mind that the work is the work itself. Now, if there were, if there was some sort of writing, whether essay, poem, you know, found materials or whatever, if that is part of the work, I'm, I'm fine with that. If it is expository, that is where I would I would rather not see it. The the thing is like, and you you start to realize this is if 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 there are things that are need to be said to understand the book, those can be done in other places. Like the book can still remain the book, and like us as as sellers, then we could you know we could put that copy on our website. You can say those things in interviews. You can give that material to an interviewer. You know if you if you're, you can write it if you're responding in writing. You know there's there's enough ways to get those things out so if they are not if they're not the work get them out in a different way i i I, yeah i really don't like if it's an old if it's a stephen shore catalog then then an essay is fine that's but that but that's not my idea of a photo book that is literally what i was thinking about was the essay i read in a stephen shore no i mean (laughs) or the friedlander catalog you know like peter galassi's essay in there like is brilliant i mean all the sarkowski essays from the books that he did, I'm, I treasure having them. Right, but but you're saying if the if the text like like in Jim Goldberg's kind of works, like the, if it's incorporated into the work, totally appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's integral. That is it. You know that yeah. that is it. Right. No, I think it's fascinating. I have a big pet peeve about the need in the world for artists to create statements mm. about their work. Like, I believe we are creators of visual or experiential ex- things that are defined as art, and that we shouldn't need to write about them also. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, I understand why students are still required to do it, and it's painful and everything, but I'm just, I'm so glad that I'm beyond that point where I am you know, required or uh, where I'm going to do it, you know, you, you know, the thing was like, I just, I love what Wright Morris said once a long time ago. He's like, you know, we used to say the picture is worth a thousand words and now we need to spill a thousand words on a picture. You know, like for me, I really, I trust and love photographs. And I, I mean, I, I love paintings and I love, you know, a lot of music and everything. And I just, like I said, I just would rather never have anything expository necessarily about it. And I just, I just think it almost gets to the definition of what I call a photo book. Is like a photo book is meant to be a, a very self-contained. It is an art object itself, you know. And like I said, so you know, just hitting my theme is that if, if the essay, the words, or whatever are part of that book, good. And if they're just meant to explain it, let's let's do it somewhere else. You know, it's great. <laughs> I'm all for it. All right. Uh, I asked about it earlier. I'm not sure it got answered. So let's try this one again. I guess the question is like, is it important? And do you focus on trying to get the books like in collections or particular libraries or things like this, like, or particular collectors? Like, are, is there a whole network of like photo book collectors? Is that a thing still? It is a thing still. And I, I, you know, our trade editions don't necessarily play in that area. I mean, I, we would be glad and we do, you know, now we, that we become friends with people who I, I do consider collectors and they, and they automatically buy our books. But like, I'll give you an example. Um, good friend of mine, Raymond Meeks, like he, um, he's got a new MacBook coming out, but, and that'll be, you know, obviously trade edition with a special edition, but from, from most of his career, he's made 20 or 30 copies of things or even less, you know, and he has a built-in network of people 
who are going to buy those things. And that is a really great model. What it means is you've got those people who are paying obviously higher price levels because you're, there's much more handwork in it. There's just much more time. I mean, the book is worth, you know, five, six hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, you know, potentially a couple three thousand dollars or something like that. And there are other people I know, friends who work in that area, cultivating that, that kind of thing. And I think it's great. I mean, I think there's all these different ways where ice plant and where TIS and most of the other ones are working. We do make special editions. We would, you know, obviously collectors are important for that, but we are, we are, and we're expressly trying to price our books so that students can get them. Right. And that's the, when, when Ray Meeks did a book with TIS with us, he, you know, he, that was one of his, you know, the things he said is I, I almost all my books are not available to like students and to, to people starting out. And he's like, I want to make a book that has a high enough quantity and as a, as a price point. So, you know, there's just different objectives and different kinds of kind of ways of getting into that. Well, like when I work as a teacher, the past two universities I've worked at, one of my big peeves was that their photo library, their photo book library was weak. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even that. And so like, oftentimes I go in as a teacher and basically increase the budget or create a budget to start creating a photo book library as a great reference for students. So like libraries and then like even institutional collections, Mm -hmm. like I'm thinking, you know, museum collections and things like this, like, is this a a goal for your, your books? It it sure is. And I, I, sorry, I, I dropped that part of the question but because so i think you know maybe it's a thing that we i i slightly regret that we didn't pursue more and maybe it would be something in the future but there are there is like a, a group at least in north america and maybe it's more extensive of art librarians right and they even have a conference and i thought you know like somehow we got to get in we got to get press releases or emails or something to that group right because because they buy, they have budgets, you know, and what we found- And they pay full price. Yeah, they don't ask for discounts. Yeah. The one cool thing is that since now we have such a network, like people who went to the same MFA as we did, and, you know, there's a lot of people who are in teaching, as you were mentioning, they're in teaching. So they can make requests of the library and those are almost always honored. So, um, you know, the more, you know, you can have people request that because I do, not only is it just- yeah, you would like to have, you would like to sell the book, but like kind of the imprimatur of like MoMA, you know, and, and Whitney and everything, them buying your book, but also Yale and, and city university of New York and all that. That's, it's cool. So you want, you want to have that happen. And, and ultimately you do want to have these things available for students to see at some point. The one cool thing, there's a, I think it, you know, it works globally. It's, there's a website called WorldCat. And it's really fun because like you can put in not your ISBN or your title or your name and, and it all of the museums and everyone that has um, accessioned the book puts it on there. And so you can kind of see how far and wide it's getting. It's, it's kind of cool. I mean, yeah, it's, you know, and as an artist, you're certainly a point of pride to know that the books are being, you know, collected and, and at the, the, in, you know, institutions that are important to you. So the only, you know, the one thing I always tell, this is more to the artist who's interested in, you know, in maybe getting their book published, is to never, I, I, I review, especially maquettes. Like if you've gone to the part and point, like people think this is their, their absolute one shot and they, the book is, is going to be large, both in 
trim size and in thickness. It's probably going to have like crazy papers. It's going to have like a belly band. They even gild the page. I don't you know. Like, I, I just want to tell everybody like calm down. Like uh, because you're going to have you're going to have opportunities, but also publishers are not so interested in looking at a product that looks so completely done, right? You, every, publishers are to varying degrees are going to want to have an influence on how a book ends up. So if you can make a plain sort of lovely maquette that, that gets at this, you know, it's, it's in the size range of where you would like to be. It has the pictures nicely printed. You know, that is where most people are going to want to see something because they're going to, they're wanting to see, you know, a solid thing that's makeable, but they're also going to want to see opportunities and possibilities, right? Where they can bring some of their expertise to it. So it's just not to think that you have to present this amazing, completely done thing to anyone. That's not what any of us are expecting. And it's it's very rarely what gets made. I mean, it, sometimes, you know, you may take something wholesale and be like, yep, that's pretty much done. Cool. But in general, uh, the publisher is going to want to, you know, work with you and say, hey, you know, like, I mean, the ice plant, you know, they, my first maquette, they bumped up the size not substantially, but I just to the, you know, their, their sensibility for that was just like, just perfect, you know, and some others, oh, they moved, they gave me a look, a little more white space below the pic, they moved the picture within the page, right? Again, like, just perfect, like, it was perfectly what I needed. I'm not a designer, you know, like, but you need to, you need to maintain some flexibility and some, I guess, just some, some air to breathe for the publisher, you know, and I think you'll find more success if you just make sure the idea is really solid and that the production is not necessarily done yet. Or super expensive. Like or, don't yes, don't come right. in with like gold foiling and all kinds of crazy shit. Like as the first book. Yeah, foldouts and die cuts are never going to happen. So you know, start to get used to that. And you know, if that's if it's a, yeah, if it's essential to your work, okay, you're gonna have to. But you're gonna have to. There's gonna have to be concessions made. And you're gonna have to figure that out. But if they're not essential, don't put the bells and whistles. You know. Die cutting is insanely expensive. <laughs> Amazing. Like, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I love a die sure. cut, anything, sure. business card, whatever. But like, holy crap, it's expensive. Yeah. yeah. You just have to realize what's going to get made and what can get made. And what your objective is. It's like, do you want, do you just, do you have some pictures you'd like to get out in the world? Or do you have an art object book that you want to get out in the world? And you just have to be honest with your, yourself about ultimately, you know, what you want to have happen. Okay. Last question then based on that would be, if somebody, let's say, is sitting in their studio listening to this, and let's not even say it's your publishing place, but like, what's a good approach to, well, approaching a publisher? Like, I mean, is it a cold email? I mean, mm -hmm. I, we already talked about it. It's probably, you know, friends of friends kind of thing. But let, let's say there is no connection, mm -hmm. but you found a publisher that is of your oeuvre, mm -hmm. let's say, yeah. and, and you believe you'll fit with them well, like how would you approach them? Should they take it slowly and like show up at an art, a book fair that you are participating in, maybe meet you once and then, you know, later do some context. Like, I mean, it, it, what's the sort of the best way that you have experienced it working well? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, you're right. If you, if you can find a personal connection to them, Great, but let's let's say that that doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be it would be if you have the ability to get to one of those book fairs and and you know I would just yeah talk up everybody and take business cards and everything and if you know if you feel like you have the time and the patience yeah don't don't be like hey man I got a book you know um, don't do that yet take the time to do the research you know get in contact with them and do think about where the, where their catalog exists and and where you think and then you know like 
you may want to start a conversation if you can. But I do think like, you know, I just see so many emails with like already the attachment there and, you know, and all this kind of stuff in your end. You do, I think it would be nice if there was a kind of a personal thing, you know, like, you know, dear Matthew, I met you here and I was really fascinated with a couple books you did. And I, you know, like, I, I think, you know, like that what I'm doing is kind of in that area. If you're taking anything, I'd love to, to show you something, you know, and, and that, you know, that, that's probably a nice way. And then somebody can say, Hey, you know, that they, that this person has really considered this and has really looked at it and, you know, they're, they're getting what I do. And, and that goes a long way to, to getting, you know, some sort of foot in the door. Again, you know, using your connections, even if you don't have a direct connection, maybe if you have a name or two or a teacher who's, who has written a kind thing about it or something like that, those, are, those things can also help. Some kind of third-party blurbing or vouching for, you know, what's going on. Those things can help. So, you know, whether without a direct connection is kind of figuring out, well, how there's a web of connections still, you know, maybe I can use some of those or, you know, I can... Maybe, it, you know, it got a small prize or, you know, or something like that, you know, like, or it got a grant, you know, like, which is also cool. Also, yeah, I guess I should bring into that, like, certainly we've done it and other publishers have done it from school or from a state organization or from a federal organization. You may get a grant to publish something that's going to obviously, you know, change the whole equation with the publisher, you know, because it's really cool. You're not asking the artist for his or her money. Somebody's given you money to publish it. So that that's fantastic. I mean, you know, the Guggenheim grant that's really money that you're supposed to realize your project with. And that for many people, it's been, let's print the book, you know, like, and so that's something I didn't mention because it's a little rare, but you know, like if there's, if there's ways that, you know, you have of, of making yourself even more attractive to the publisher, you know, like then, then that would be cool. Come in fully funded. Well, yeah, fully funded would be super awesome. But like, even if there's some money, you know, like, you know, like I said, we wouldn't want to ask you for your own personal money, but if there's, if there's funds, you know, we, I, I know sometimes professors have publishing fund, you know, funds that they have to use in a year or something like that, and so those can be directed to the, to that end as well, and that's that's fantastic. Just figuring out, like, yeah, whatever connections and whatever, le- you know, leverage is sounds like a bad word, but like you know, whatever kind of you know things you can that you can work with to help help your case. Fabulous. Yeah. All right, thank you very much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Really fun. 